Looks like we're going. All right. Welcome. Hello. This is a special edition of the Wrestling for MMA podcast on, on the Fight Site podcast network. I'm your host, Ed Gallo. I've been your host for all your episodes, so you probably know that. Um, but I got two guests here with me today. I've been rolling in guests. Uh, guest number one is uh, Ben Cohn, my colleague, another writer for the Fight Site. He focuses on grappling as he is a purple belt. You got it. And he trains with uh, Marcelo Garcia. And we're here with uh, three-time NCAA All-American Hudson Taylor, who is also a purple belt with Marcelo Garcia. So that is how they know each other, um, how we scored this awesome interview. But yeah, we're going to be uh, talking about wrestling, going to be talking about jiu-jitsu. We might talk about MMA. I don't know. That's up to, up to you, sir. Uh, but yeah, just... Uh, going to be more of an interview we don't have any specific uh techniques or concepts we plan to go over but if they come up i'm happy to hear about them but yeah it's just going to be a, a fun time to talk about an interesting person i will say that uh you know the the mode you know the theory behind the podcast is supposed to be exploring you know the, the links between sports uh between wrestling between mma between grappling uh but it's also about you know shining the light on you know things or people who are unappreciated uh, underappreciated, you might even say. So right off the bat, I mean, just looking uh, at your record, uh, in just looking at your accomplishments as a collegiate wrestler, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say you're probably one of the best to never win it, never win an NCAA title, just even just statistically looking at it. But then once you go deeper and look at the names, uh, just right off the top of my head, you you pinned NCAA champion Cam Simez. Uh, you have wins twice. over another. <laughs> you pinned him twice? Oh my yeah. God. Uh, you have wins over uh, Josh Glenn, who's an NCAA champion, who pinned Chris Weidman the year before that. Uh, you have wins over NCAA champion Max Askren. Do uh, you have a win over Phil Davis? I don't. I don't. Uh, you, you, you've competed with NCAA champion Phil Davis, but this is a guy who's right there beating multiple NCAA champions. So uh, if you don't know about him, you're about to. Uh, but yeah, just uh, welcome, welcome aboard. And did you, would you like to introduce yourself to the, to the people? Yeah, uh, my name's Hudson, and uh, I don't know, I've wrestled my whole life. I'm now obsessed with jujitsu. Uh, I'm excited to talk about both because I'm, uh, I'm a student of, the, of both sports, and, and the, I think about wrestling, I think about jujitsu quite a bit, and I'm excited to sort of share kind of my journey with both. And, uh, and I love the content of this podcast. You know, the links between sports is where I think a lot of the most important knowledge lies. So, um, yeah, excited to see what we uncover thank you thank you and ben do you want to say a little little bit and share some news with the people maybe <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh well i'm sure you guys know me if you know ed ben Cohn. uh sometimes you'll see my grappling pieces you'll see my interviews as well this is now the fourth interview we've set up uh through me uh, everyone please stay safe and stay indoors because you never know when corona will will pop up as I found out. So I'm okay, thankfully, and asymptomatic, and just stay safe. Follow the advice of doctors, doctors, um, and just stay safe, everyone, please. Our, our, uh, our thoughts and prayers and strength, it's all, it's all with you, Ben. We're, we got you, and you're uh, one of our smarter staff members, so we know you're being responsible, so that's just how uh, tough it is to, to avoid something on this scale. Uh, so yeah, just a little PA, uh, public service announcement there. Cool. So whenever I talk to a wrestler, I've done a, a decent amount of interviews with wrestlers. Uh, whenever I talk to a wrestler, I got to start at the very beginning because I think people don't always appreciate how it's a lifelong journey and how much time often has gone into this thing. Um, I think it's a lot of the reason why wrestlers end up being so high level when they transition to other sports is because they've been competing and training as long as they can remember. Um, usually five or six years old is, is when a lot of people start. So uh, I'd, I'd like to hear your story as much as, of it, as you want to go into detail. But, you know, how, how did it start? Where did it start? And how did it go from there? Great. Yeah, so I, I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, I started wrestling when I was six years old. So like I'm sure a lot of the wrestlers you've talked to, it's, it was some of my first memories are on a wrestling mat, honestly, right? Um, I... You know, I grew up in a soccer town, so it was interesting in that I I really enjoyed wrestling. I you know I wasn't great at it. Obviously, when you first start in any sport, there's a there's a learning curve. But 
um, you know, I'd say in I think fifth grade, I like placed in the state tournament for the first time. And, and it was funny because, you know, as an athlete in a sport specifically like wrestling, it's so, it's so hard when you lose, right? It's like, there's nothing that puts a mirror up against your ego more than I think grappling and combat sports. Um, and so I was so proud as a young wrestler of the things that I was accomplishing, even though I wasn't the best. And yet being in a soccer town, nobody cared. <laughs> so it was interesting because it, it just kind of made me find an early love of wrestling that wasn't based on what other people thought, what other people thought was cool. Um, I was going to pursue wrestling because I wanted to be as, as good as I could possibly be at this sport. Um, in sort of fifth grade and then into sixth grade, I started to really take wrestling super seriously. Uh, I was competing probably every single weekend throughout the entire year. So I, I clocked a ton of competitions that fifth, fifth and sixth grade year. Um, and the thing that my dad did for me, and, and I think it made me the wrestler that I ultimately became was uh, I entered into every tournament that I did on the weekends, I entered into two age groups. So I was competing against the kids who are my age, and then I was competing up an age group and just getting completely smoked, like, every match. <laughs> and it, it was very healthy for me because it gave me a relationship with losing that allowed me to grow and improve and, and use losing as a lesson um, to make myself better. And, and I think that as a result, you know, I had, I had these nemeses who just completely beat me up in, like, third and fourth grade, and then I went a year without competing against them. And those were the times when I was really, again, locking a ton of competitions and getting beat up by older kids. And then when we finally wrestled again, it was like I had like entered the matrix and, <laughs> and it like was like no contest. And so that was when I really had my, my first big growth and uh, evolution as a wrestler. And so mm -hmm. seventh and eighth grade, I was um, now kind of like top of the country, top five, uh, you know, kids in my weight class. Um, I went to a high school called Blair Academy, which nice. is, you know, the kind of dynasty of wrestling. When I was there, we were the number one high school all four years. I was training at Blair in sixth, seventh and eighth grade. So as a middle schooler, I was going to those Blair practices a couple times a week, also getting completely beat up by the best high school kids in the country. And yeah, Blair was a very special place for me because, um, I just, I just learned to look at my, to be a real student of my sport. Um, you know, I was never the strongest, the fastest, the most athletic kid, but, uh, I think Blair allowed me to kind of analyze my matches, analyze my weaknesses in a way that, um, just helped me continue to like minimize the areas where I was subpar. And, and as a result, it became harder and harder to beat me. Um, yeah, and so you know, I can tell you lots about Blair, lots about that culture in there. But from from Blair, I went on to Maryland, um, proud Terp. Uh, you know, I wanted to go to a school where I felt I could both excel as a wrestler and be an individual. I think mm -hmm. there were a lot of schools that were recruiting me that I felt like I was going to be another number, like you know, kind of be forced to fit into a very narrow athlete box. Uh, Maryland was a place where I thought that I could really build my own legacy and be my own athlete, be my own individual. Um, and that was certainly the case. I mean, I ended up at Maryland as a three-time All-American. Um, you know, I, as you said, I never got the, never got that national title, which, you know, for any athlete you still think about and that still burns. But <laughs> what I am very proud of is that I was obsessed with pinning. Um, and I, you know, I finished college with 87 pins, which, uh, you know, about 50% of my matches were falls. So I was addicted to trying to get pins, competing as much as possible, and I wasn't happy unless a match ended in the fall. Um, and so there's a lot to say about like the mentality and the sort of the training that goes into being a pinner. Uh -huh. But um, but yeah, and then that was it. And then you're 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 a wrestler, you're competing, and then your journey comes to an end. And I uh, I coached for three years at Columbia University. I was an assistant coach there, and uh, I started a nonprofit and that ended up taking up more and more of my time. And so it really became clear that I couldn't coach 
at the level that I wanted to and run this nonprofit. And so that's what ultimately pulled me into jujitsu. And uh, I haven't looked back. Nice. That's, that's awesome. And there's a lot to process there. So I actually do want to go back and ask a few questions that were coming Please. up for me uh, as you're talking. So uh, first of all, yeah, with the recruitment going to Maryland, uh, explain your, your thought process there a little bit. Originally, uh, the head coach was not Kerry McCoy, right? When you were recruited and then Kerry McCoy came on staff, what was that transition like for you? And did it change things that you were recruited by one person then end up being coached by another person? Yeah, so Pat Santoro uh, oh, nice. re- recruited Excellent. me in Maryland. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I can't say enough about him as a person and a coach. And, um, you know, he I think he really had has that coaching mentality that kind of um, coaches to the individual, you know, um, there are lots of times in which we would have time outside of quote unquote practice where it would be very one-on-one specific training. And I knew that Pat was going to really help, you know, kind of hone my game for me. He wasn't mm-hmm. going to try to make me a, you know, an Iowa wrestler or an Okie State wrestler, you know, like it wasn't going to try to fit my technique within a, a system. He was going to help me refine the game that I already had to be as effective as possible. Um, and so that was a big part of, of, you know, I believe in Pat and, and why I ended up choosing Maryland. And, and I think the, the, sort of the coaching transition was certainly really hard for me. Um, I think it's hard for any athlete who, you know, Maryland was not a powerful school, right? right. It, was, it wasn't a powerhouse. And so we went to Maryland based on the belief of what it could be. And, and that belief was tied to Pat as a coach. And so as soon as we heard the news that he was leaving, that really upends your entire world, your entire uh, like prospects for the future. You know, is this, is this still the place where I'm going to accomplish my dreams? Do I, should I transfer? You know, we had a lot of conversations. Um, now, at that point, I'd already All-American uh, once. And gotcha. so I was kind of at a place in my career where, you know, having Kerry come on, who's a you know, heavyweight, three-time national champ, Olympian, like, I was like, okay, okay, like, I don't know how he's going to be as a coach, right? Like, I'm going to have to figure that out as any athlete would. But as a training partner, I couldn't ask for a better person in the room with me to help, mm-hmm. you know, help me close out my goals. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it was certainly, a, it's a challenging process. It was a challenging transition, but I think that that's true for any athlete. Sure. Yeah, and Kerry uh, McCoy also world silver medalist. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's somebody uh, at a very high level as a competitor coming in, and like pe- people uh, often look straight towards the head coach as like the person that needs to like run the ship. But a lot of the time, it's it's a full staff job. Whereas you know maybe a head coach is making a lot of great administrative decisions, but they're you know first and foremost they're first of all they're a draw. Like you want to go yeah. work out with with that guy, um, so it's great for recruiting. Plus, it's great for development in the room. And then, uh, you know, maybe you have like your Kale Sanderson, who's who's in that role. But you also have like your Casey Cunningham's and and you know a supporting cast too. You know, all the fine details, all the behind the scenes stuff is being run. So, uh, you know, Maryland's an interesting program because uh, they you know probably weren't really anything on the, on the radar. Pat Santor really elevates the program. Carrie McCoy, you know, first chunk of time it, it's, a, it's still a hot program still doing really well uh, i think you were definitely one of the key figures people pointed to for maryland's success and in nowadays uh you don't really hear as much from the program carrie mccoy uh, has left the position um still getting good recruits here and there but like i remember uh, i'm a pit wrestling fan i went mm-hmm. to university of pittsburgh just to not to wrestle but just to be there uh so uh, maryland was in the acc for the first couple of years i was there so I, I got a good look and like they still had good guys, especially upper weights like Jimmy Sheptock. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably worked out with him a bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it seems like the program's falling off a bit. Do you have any insight into, you know, kind of the inner workings of, like, maybe not getting support from the athletic department? Or I'm sure you have good ties to the program still. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's really difficult to say. I mean, I think what mm-hmm. makes a program, there's so many intangibles. Um, you know, I... I, I I don't know if this is true or not, but I in part feel like I take responsibility for where the program went and is today. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, when I was, so my junior year at Maryland, we were 10th in the country. We had three All-Americans that year and 
again, we're not a powerhouse, but we're definitely on the rise. And I think we're definitely a few recruiting classes away from getting to, you know, fifth in the country. And now right. we're in the hunt. Like you look at NC State. I mean, they're doing a great job. And we were essentially ahead of them in our journey. Right. And then that changed. That really changed. And I think the challenge was, and it was tied to the the change of, of Pat to carry. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I was at a place in my career where I knew what I needed as an athlete to be successful. I knew the training that I needed to do, the time that I needed to put on the mat to accomplish what I needed. And I think that when any new coach comes in, that new coach is saying, okay, here's the new system. Here's the new structure. Here's what we're going to do to continue building this program. And there were definitely ways in which I didn't buy into that. And Mm. I think those, um, there's the seeds of, uh, not doubt, but like those seeds of, like, <laughs> of friction. Sure. Um, you know, were in part taught to the freshmen when I was a senior, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, you had the freshmen seeing the upperclassmen having some friction or, you know, wanting to do things in a different way. And then they became the upperclassmen who then taught the freshmen. And then before you know it, you have a, a different team culture that may not be bought in in the way that right. you really need to be bought in. Right. So I feel like I'm a part of that. And, um, you know, it makes me really sad because I'm a proud turf and I want nothing more than for Maryland to, to thrive and succeed. And um, that's why I'm now, you know, I'm, I, as an alumni, I'm like trying to give back to the program. And mm-hmm. I, think, I think that so many uh, NCAA programs now really rely on strong RTC programs. If you don't have a good roster of... Um, right. Olympic caliber athletes in the room, it's really hard to be that, uh, you know, the best recruiters possible and get that top talent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's interesting. And culture is built in so many different ways. And you talked about NC state. That's like, when you talk to the wrestlers or the coaches, like that's what they say every time is like, how did NC state get from nowhere to here? It's like, they built a culture in the room, they stuck to it and they adhered to it and everyone bought in. And that's, a very consistent message you hear across programs that have become very successful. So it's a, it's a very fragile thing. I'm sure. Um, I obviously hadn't had the experience myself, but just from what I hear, um, but yeah, Maryland's in an interesting spot. I mean, it's in the big 10 now, which makes it a very enviable position, uh, for coaches and, and for people to run it. And the state of Maryland has a lot of great, uh, wrestlers who have come out of it. Like you have, you know, your Kyle Snyder's and Helen Marulis and, and people like that. So there's still potential. There's still potential. It's definitely not over. Uh, but yeah, just in, in a rough spot. Switching gears a little bit. Uh, this is like a, a pet topic of mine that uh, the guys at the site, we talk about this all the time and we're like fighting with people all day about it. Uh, and it's the disparity of, of talent, you might say, the disparity of skill that some people recognize from lighter weight classes to heavier weight classes. And as someone from a heavier weight class, this is probably something you thought about before. So here's, here's how I frame it, first of all. In mixed martial arts, this is when it comes up because it's a very underdeveloped sport. The talent pool isn't really there like it is in wrestling or boxing or something like that. So I think it's demonstrably true that in MMA, we have less skilled competitors at the top weights just because there's less people and statistically, it's kind of how it shakes out. I always point to wrestling and I say, because people tell me like, oh, you can't judge them by the same metrics. Because I'm not saying like, oh, they're not as fast, so they're worse or they do less things, so they're worse. I'm saying this guy isn't like, his back is round when he's finishing the single. Like he's doing these things wrong. It's not a function of weight. Um, so I, I try to point to things like that and then show people like the heavyweight world finals from you know, 2019 and freestyle, like a Petrashvili and Akul. And like, look at these guys. Like they're doing everything just as well as Rashidov is at 65. Like they're they're at the, a similar level. So it's not just a weight thing. Um, but I, I just wanted to get to get your take on it. Um, just on. You know, have you seen that in wrestling? What do you think it is? And what was your progression with weight? Because another theory that we have is that in wrestling, people who were lighter when they were learning how to wrestle and going through high school and everything like that end up being like the more technical, uh, you know, upper weight guys when they when they bump up to those weights. So just wanted to throw that all at you and, and get your get your feedback. <laughs> oh, I'm 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 happy to throw my thoughts into the ring on this. I can tell uh-huh. it's been a, a a lively debate. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> So, uh, 
my my weight class sort of trajectory, I was 152 in high school. Okay. I was 152, 52, 71, 89. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I was a 197-pounder my entire college career. Um, you know, I, I think that, look, in any kind of combat sport, uh, the strength of a competitor is not linear, right? Mm-hmm. Like everybody's going to reach a plateau of what, how much weight they're able to lift explosively. And the, the bigger an athlete, you can get away with more because, you know, a 285 pound dude sprawling on you yeah. is going to be effective regardless or not, uh, uh, regardless of whether or not they do that sprawl technically well right mm-hmm. so at upper weights you definitely have some leniency with how technical you need to be um that being said you know i lifted as much weight in the weight room as our 125 pounder right so i am the weakest weight room person <laughs> on earth it's a joke um but I understood leverage very, very well, right? So the strongest 197 pounder, I'm going to take your shoulder off because I know how and where to apply leverage and force and, you know, make you turn. So, yeah, I mean, I I think that um, technique and athleticism evolve around body types and Mm -hmm. sets. And in in any weight class-based sport, you're going to have different types of athleticism and technique manifesting at different levels of the sport um, just because that's what's going to work, right? And so, right. you know, they are different sports in a certain way, right? The, the heavyweight match is a different sport than the lightweight, than a lightweight match. Interesting. Um, but that's not to say that they're any less technical. It's just mm-hmm. a different body of technique that they need to be successful. Right. I, I sometimes like to say to see even further the argument that it's not a function of being big that's making people less technical. Um, because at, at heavyweight, you talk about the heavyweight sprawl, um, like a trap that people get into is maybe they bump up in weight and they're taking the same kinds of attacks and they're shooting underneath. And like, I'm, you know, about 135. When I shoot underneath someone my size, I've got, I don't have the weight of the world on top of me. I feel like I can build up, I can work from there, I can scramble. When you're a heavyweight or 197 and you shoot straight on, you get flattened out and you're underneath someone, that's a terrible spot to be in. Terrible. Um, it's so different, like just the way that the weight functions. So I say that to be very good as a, as a heavyweight or 197, sometimes you have to be better technically than, than a 125 because you have to avoid the situation and be more careful uh, and be more selective, which should yeah. be true for you know MMA and sports like that too but uh, a lot of people can trade in on durability and things like that and get away with stuff like you said um, mm. but yeah I think there's a lot of uh, interplay there I have one more question I'm going to pass it off to you Ben you've been very patient uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah just uh, specifically you know you talked about you know committing to, to being a pinner and, and having a pinning style could you talk me through uh, the way you wrestle uh, how it you know developed you know what it what was like it maybe in high school how it changed in college and how you really refined it and the the ideas behind how you wrestle sure so my sort of top game and i was a leg rider right and Mm so my um my sort of introduction into legs came from the the areas where i was training right so i was going to a wrestling club in uh philip uh phillipsburg new jersey uh which was run called red hawk which was run by folks who are connected to easton pennsylvania so easton is another kind of you know program that's always been super tough in the lehigh in the valley strong strong wrestling strong Mm -hmm. top wrestling in particular and so the first thing that i think really helped me on top is the way in which those practices were scheduled were very routine so every monday we did you know it was single wrist mondays it was, you know, crab ride Tuesdays. And there was this cycle of techniques that we, that we hit every single day on the day. And we knew, we knew exactly what the blueprint of the practice was going to be before we even stepped on the mat. And so I think that that just intentional repetition helped give me a really solid foundation to modify and evolve my top game um, as I went into high school and you know, how to modify it in college. 
Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that I think was really important for me as a top wrestler, and this is a pet peeve that I have with drilling in general. Um, I think a lot of wrestlers and even in jujitsu, a lot of people train and drill what I would call like one dimensionally. So I'm going to drill a takedown and then we're going to stand up and I'm going to drill that same takedown again. Gotcha. I'm going to drill an escape or I'm going to drill a, a guard pass, right? And you just keep doing that singular motion over and over again, which is good, but that's not how what a competition looks like. And I think mm-hmm. that the moment when you have the greatest opportunity to get back points or to get a submission is in the transition of scoring, right? So the way in which I would drill religiously all throughout high school and college was takedown to back points, escape to takedown, uh, like reversal to back points. So I was always drilling chained sequences that allowed me to capitalize on that two-second moment when I, get the, when I get that takedown or I score that reversal to really strike and look for that pin, look for those back points. And I think that it's in that, those sort of microseconds where mm-hmm. you either... You know, you either pin somebody or you completely lose all of that that opportunity. So, um, I think enough, not enough wrestlers or fighters or people in jujitsu train with that chaining sequencing in mind. Um, mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's a very intelligent way to approach it. And like, you know, it's good because it's one of those things when someone explains it to you. You're like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that, that seems so simple, but not that many people are doing it. And that's, that's when you know it's a good idea is when it makes all the sense in the world. And you're like, wait, why is that not happening more often? I'm going to start doing that. Um, thank you. I'm going to pass the baton off to Ben if you want to transition into more jiu-jitsu-centric questions and also start talking about the nonprofit efforts. That would be awesome. Absolutely. Um, so I think you started jiu-jitsu in 2014. If I'm not mistaken, let's. Yeah. I guess we talked about how you got into wrestling. Let's talk about how you got to jujitsu because there was about there was a four year gap between the wrestling and jujitsu. How did it happen? Who brought you in? And mm-hmm. how did you end up at Marcelo's? Because I personally benefited from that, so I'm glad you did. Um, yeah. So. So after Columbia, I wasn't. Um, you know, on, look, I've been on a mat almost every day since I was six. So it was very. You know, I needed a mat to continue to stay in shape and just be connected to the sport. And so I was living in Hoboken at the time, and there's a a gym there called Edge. Uh, And so I was helping to just teach a couple classes here and there. Um, Most of the people who were taking a wrestling class were people who maybe they wrestled in high school, maybe a little bit in college, not at a high level, you know, just kind of wanting to stay in shape, maybe even get into it. And so whenever we went live, it was, it was just like a good workout for me without it being a real challenge, right? There, there wasn't anybody stepping onto that mat that was like, you know, <laughs> coming with the technique or athleticism to really challenge me. Uh, but then one day this guy comes in and we go through class and then we go live and, and he, uh, you know, we shake hands and he like shoots a really hard single leg. I'm like, oh, all right, cool. Like, that's cute. And then I like, you know, I sprawl, I take him down, we get back up, he immediately like shoots a single leg again, like really aggressive. I'm like, okay, like, he's still going for it, like sprawl, stretch him out, take him down. And, you know, when you're in the coaching position, there is a certain amount of ego where you don't want to like get, show that you're tired, right? Uh But this dude just kept shooting and I was getting exhausted. I was not in the kind of shape to keep defending shot after shot after shot. And then finally, like, we're like maybe 12 minutes in. I am dead. I'm just so tired of this dude continuing to (laughs) shoot the same single leg shot. And finally he shoots and he takes me down. And I walk off the mat just completely dejected. Like, what am I doing with my life? Like, you know, (laughs) this is terrible. And the coach turns to me and says, do you know who that was? I said, no, who's that? He says, his name is uh, Bernardo Faria you know, five, five time black belt world champion. Uh. <laughs> I was like, oh, like what's jujitsu? Like, I don't know anything about this. And so that really started my, my, that was my introduction to jujitsu. And, um, I started to train with Bernardo and we would, um, we would do 30 minutes of wrestling and 30 minutes of jujitsu. 
And that was our trade-off. We just sort of trade knowledge with each other on a weekly basis. And it, it wasn't long before he was like, you know, hey, man, like, you have to come, <laughs> come, come to Marcelo's. Uh, and so next thing you know, I'm, I'm showing up to Marcelo's and, um, you know, I'm thinking, okay, I got all this wrestling knowledge. This is going to be an easy transition for me. And so much of my wrestling game offensively was like my favorite shot was a high crotch crackdown. And for any kind of submission sport, you're putting yourself into the guillotine and being, or the crucifix. And, um, it was just terrible. My first week at Marcelo, I was <laughs> choked left and right by the smallest people. And I was, uh, it was so humbling. And that's in part what hooked me, you know, is, uh, is like just being, feeling that technical superiority um, really made me want to learn more about it. Yeah, that's, um, so it's, it's interesting because like for, for you to, I mean, like you said, you, you achieved near the highest levels of the, you were at the highest levels of your your sport. I can't like it's it, as a competitor to come in and like you said, the smallest guys are choking you in your best takedown. That's got to be an interesting mindset to like. I, I'm curious, like how that mindset like did it. You said it it uh, motivated you. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if you think like can that also just deject people? Sure. In your experience, have you seen people who come into that mind with that knowledge? I have a lot of thoughts about this. Go for it. <laughs> well, look, I think the, in our society is structured to make us run away from being a beginner. We start in school, you specialize in a subject, you then get a job in that subject, and you, over time, you take less and less risks because you start to surround yourself with those things that you feel like you have some subject matter expertise in, that you are confident in your ability to do somewhat decently, right? Like, oh, I, I, I can kind of cook, so I'm going to keep cooking, right? Or like, and so we end up creating this bubble of safety around us. And, and I think that very few people put themselves into that beginner's mindset into being a white belt again. And for me personally, I seek that out. I want to be a student of as many things that I can. I want to suck at as many things that I can. Um, and I think that wrestling has really given me that gift. And I think combat sports in general kind of give you that gift because you have to kind of kill your ego if you're going to be good at these sports. Because nobody gets good at any of these sports without taking their literal beatings. And I've taken my beatings in wrestling. I'm taking my beatings in jujitsu still on a daily basis. But that's what makes us great at the things that we're pursuing. And so um, I think there's nothing better than being a white belt at a thing. Um, and so, yeah, but, but a lot of people, their egos aren't built for that. And so they shy away from it. They quit really quickly as soon as they're sort of met with that adversity. Um, which is is a shame. That's yeah, I I, I completely agree with you. And um, so I guess um, I guess a, a, a quick sidebar is judo next. <laughs> Be the no. triple threat. <laughs> no, I'm 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 deep on this jujitsu journey now. I'm <laughs> I'm so obsessed with it. And um, you know, it's it's funny because I'm again I'm like I consider myself a very technical wrestler, but there's so many things that are just not the same technically in like the best practice in wrestling doesn't necessarily translate to the best practice in jujitsu, right? The ways in which you like, for instance, like good wrestling technique opens your neck up to be choked in a lot mm -hmm. of different situations. So it's just been, a, I'm very specifically obsessed with jujitsu because of the contrast between my deep subject matter expertise in wrestling there are ways in which it does and does not translate to jujitsu. And I find that that translation area really fascinating. I think that there are still so many technical things that jujitsu has to learn from wrestling and so many technical things that wrestling has to learn from jujitsu. I mean, that was also one of the big eye openers for me is like in, in, in wrestling, when you turn somebody, 
it's pr it's predominantly my legs are attacking your legs so i'm throwing in legs and i'm trying to hit use my hips to turn your hips and my arms are attacking your arms right i'm power half um you know some sort of cross face right in jujitsu you're really using your legs and your hands to attack limbs in very different ways and use leverage in very different ways and so um I don't know. I, I, I think that there's a whole world of jujitsu technique that could be transla translated into free folk style wrestling to turn people, to control people. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm obsessed with jujitsu. I'm not doing judo anytime soon. Uh, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm committed to the jujitsu path. Well, it's important to also tell, tell the people listening that Hudson isn't just doing jujitsu because he's obsessed with it. He's also competing in jujitsu. He, uh, is already he was already a blue belt world champion and now as a purple belt he's a purple belt uh, no world champion in no gi. You recently, relatively recently, uh, short notice <laughs> against uh, Roberta Cyborg Abreu, who is one of the best black belts. Period. Um, for those who don't know, Cyborg Abreu is top of the food chain in jujitsu. So Hudson, you're having obviously a ton of success in your new path. My question is, uh, the, obviously the wrestling game has aided you in that. When you talk about wrestling for jujitsu and you've talked about the differences and there are a lot of things that when you're doing them from a wrestling standpoint technically are correct but are really bad for jujitsu because it opens up your neck. How did you, what, what specifically, are there certain things where you're like, this I can adapt really well, this I have to put on the back shelf because it just, it's not something that would work how long did it take you to realize those things? What would you consider really good wrestling for jujitsu? Uh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of questions there. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I think so. And this kind of goes back to the, the size com you know, conversation we had earlier. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I did very well at wrestling because of my, I, I take match strategy very seriously. Mm -hmm. And if I can score a certain number of points in the beginning of the match, I'm slowly eliminating your options to beat me. And so for me and my transition to jujitsu was really figuring out what are the ways in which I can maximize my opportunities for winning and minimize my opponent's opportunities for beating me. And so, you know, a lot of my the success that I've had in jujitsu has been frankly, just wrestling success. Um, you know, I, when I won, uh, blue belt worlds in the gi i was like okay i'm gonna shoot in the first five seconds i'm gonna go up two points against everybody and now it's on you to try to sweep me so that was my entire strategy and i got up to two zero on everybody and could, didn't couldn't get swept right and similarly yeah. purple belt worlds okay i'm gonna shoot and i'm gonna take everybody down i'm gonna go up to zero and and that's it and so there's definitely a whole realm of, of takedown techniques that I've had to modify and change because, again, my favorite takedowns in wrestling don't necessarily translate well to jiu-jitsu. But I also think there's a huge gap in, in jiu-jitsu knowledge when it comes to takedowns. So if I could just get my hands locked on a single leg, I feel like there are very few people in the jiu-jitsu world who are really sprawling in the kind of traditional way that would break my grip. So I think people in jiu-jitsu concede takedowns quicker than you would in wrestling. And, that, and I see that across all positions. Like in wrestling, we concede nothing. We don't concede the sweep, we don't concede a reversal, a takedown, like we're all, we concede nothing. And I think that in, um, in jiu-jitsu, it's been interesting to see the, the areas in which people will just like, oh, I'm gonna concede the sweep. I'm gonna concede the guard pass or, um, yeah. So, uh, again, my, my initial jujitsu success has been very much like a, a wrestling focused game. Um, you know, Nick Rodriguez has had huge success right. and he's just like hand fighting people, maybe getting a takedown, going to a ref's decision and getting the W right. Yeah. <laughs> um, where I am now is I, when I'm training at Marcelo's, I'm almost exclusively playing guard. Um, I, and, and it sucks 
it's it's not <laughs> it's not obviously where I feel most uh, like technically sound, but you know I I went to Purple Belt Worlds in the gi and you know I won my first couple of matches, but I lost in the quarters. The dude pulled guard immediately, and you know now I'm playing. Now it's a jujitsu match, and it's no longer a wrestling match. And I now need to beat you using jujitsu. And so I do think that as I climb this jujitsu ladder, I'm going to need to have more of those sound fundamentals in order to be competitive. Um, because you know, yes, there's a percentage of jujitsu that is wrestling based, but there's a bigger percentage that is jujitsu knowledge. Um, and yeah, I mean, my match with Cyborg, he he pulled guard immediately, and so. Mm-hmm. It was kind of one of those things like, okay, I guess I'm supposed to beat this legendary black belt in a jiu-jitsu match. <laughs> uh, Using jiu-jitsu. <laughs> let's do this. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's a challenge, man. But I, but I love that challenge. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to be in a room with some of the best competitors in the world, get to be coached by Marcelo, who's the best you know, teacher, technician, person. Um, yeah. So I feel very fortunate to be on this journey in the room that I'm in. Uh, well, just one, one more um, jujitsu oriented question, I guess, and then uh, we'll, we'll shift to uh, Athlete Ally. Um, and the, the question is, um, you, were, you were describing the training sessions in, in college and your, your mentality towards how you should train and your issues with certain things that you see in jujitsu, obviously, and how we drain the tech, drill the technique, stop, reset. Mm-hmm. What, what other than that are there any primary differences that you see in the training room of a wrestling uh, of a wrestling uh, program in college versus you know Marcellus is obviously an extremely high level school you know we turn out guys are just destroying in competition constantly winning team competitions individuals uh, what are the primary differences you know mm-hmm. what do you think maybe are beneficial in the sport of jiu-jitsu versus wrestling and detrimental like you explained sure prior so it i should say it's it's hard to it's not necessarily it's kind of apples to oranges a mm-hmm. little bit because sure. a, college, a college wrestling room is a team of per, you know pretty much professionals right? right it's a team of black belts so whereas your average class at marcello's mm-hmm. or any gym in the country you're going to have a whole range of of technical ability athleticism and so you need to design a class and and do it in a way that fits everybody. Um, I think, you know, outside of the chain drilling, the other thing that I see a, a lot in wrestling that I don't, haven't seen as much in jujitsu is just sort of, uh, sort of flow wrestling. So, you know, I had the opportunity to, to drop in on a, on a Penn State wrestling practice. And I'd say the first 45 minutes of the practice, they literally just flow wrestled reversal back points all on the mat no takedowns just top and bottom i'm going to turn you you're going to reverse me i'm going to turn you um and again it's like it's kind of that like less explosion explosive version of chain of of building chains and and learning to wrestle Mm -hmm. and compete in a chain and so i think that's super important and and something that could be applied to any jujitsu gym is just more flow Mm -hmm. kind of drilling but it does require a person to know what the heck they're doing. You know, if, if you're having two white belts trying to flow, <laughs> it's gonna, it's not gonna help either of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that I think is also, and this jujitsu does very well, is situational sparring. Um, I do think that that is incredibly important. I think that you know, starting in really bad positions, starting in dominant positions, um, like those are the places where you're gonna grow your game the most. And I think that's really important, and jiu-jitsu does that really well. Um, the thing that I think wrestling could really take from jiu-jitsu, the biggest thing, and I don't know what this exactly looks like, but I think the belt system is actually really important. Um, you, you know, in, in, if you look at the sort of landscape of wrestling in, in the United States, you, there are huge gaps in the quality of coaching at the youth level of our sport. Right. Mm-hmm. You go to an average high school in an in a random state and I and I quiz the wrestling coach on their technical knowledge of the sport. And it turns out that they're actually just the football coach and there wasn't somebody to coach. So now they're put in 
and they don't actually have the technical ability to, to help coach their athletes effectively. And I think that's a huge problem in wrestling writ large. It's why we see certain pockets of this country continue to produce the best wrestlers because they have youth programs with good coaches. Jiu-jitsu is interesting because you have this belt system. Every black belt, even if they weren't competitive, they at least have demonstrated some technical knowledge, right? That they've mm-hmm. actually understand the fundamental techniques of the sport um, in, a, in a really thorough way. And so I, I, I would like to see, I think wrestling could learn something from the martial arts in the belt system because I think it would, it would raise the level of our coaches' techniques nationally. And I think it would help retain talent for longer. You know, I go back to that time when I was a five in fifth grade and nobody cared about my wrestling. If I had a belt that meant something, I think kids would would look at that and say, oh, wow, like, that's really cool. You know, I mm-hmm. that's cool. I like that you have a belt. Uh, I think that just is more translatable in social situations than some of our early wrestling accolades uh, might be. So another deep convert, com- topic for another day, but... Sure. Uh, that's something I'm really interested in as well. So it's a lot easier to say I'm a blue belt than it is to say, well, I won this tournament and that tournament and placed third here for yeah. sure. Yeah. And what if you place third at the toughest tournament in the world, you know? Or, yeah, exactly. Or Nobody seventh. knows. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, they just hear you took seventh and so you kind of suck. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. As little, if you don't podium, who are you? You know? Yeah. So, but yeah, as long if you say, yeah, I've been training for six years and I'm a blue belt. You know, that can, there's some sort of a way of, I guess, picturing that in your head. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I definitely, now I want to give you the floor and transition to the, your, your work as an, as an LGBTQ advocate. Um, you've clearly done amazing work. You've been an ally since, I mean, as far back as I've read, like in, as long as you could. Um, I want you to just, I want to give you the floor to, to talk yeah. about that because you've done amazing work and it deserves to have a, sh- a spotlight shown on that. So, so yeah, it, 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 honestly, it was a completely unexpected journey. Um, you know, I started at Maryland as a, as a theater major and a music minor. So I was always in the arts and in theater. And, and um, as a result, I was, in, I was a part of two very different worlds where I had gay friends in theater who were coming out and it was sort of a non-issue. And then, you know, I've been on wrestling teams my whole life. We use homophobic language. We use sexist language. Like there are ways in which I talk my teammates talk that, um, I don't know, I just got to a place where I was like, hey, like, we could be better than this. We could be more inclusive than this. Um, you know, my goal in, in life and in this work is that I want everybody to have a positive experience in sports. I want everybody to be able to, you know, excel and pursue whatever dreams they have in sport. And I think, unfortunately, because of the culture, because of the language in a lot of locker rooms, there's a lot of LGBT athletes who don't feel like sport is a welcoming space for them. So we are missing out on an entire population of talent, of teammates, of camaraderie, of people who could make our teams and our communities better um, because of a choice of not acting, of not caring. Um, and so again, I, for most of my life, I didn't care about LGBT issues. I wasn't vocal about it. Um, my senior year at Maryland, you know, I started the season rank number two in the country. I decided to start speaking out as an ally. I wore an LGBT sticker on my headgear uh, in part because I didn't have a bumper sticker at the time. So I didn't have a I didn't have a car, so the headgear was the next best thing. But um, that sticker literally changed my life. You know, it started a lot of conversations with my teammates. I ended up doing an interview about why I wore the sticker. And about two days after that article posted, I opened up my email. And I had over 2,000 emails from closeted athletes from across the country who wrote to me and said, Hudson, I just read this article and I'm going to try out for my wrestling team. I'm going to go into the locker room and not be afraid. I'm going to start speaking out as an ally. And I was like bawling reading a lot of those emails because, again, my sport is my entire life. It is a huge part of my identity. It's opened every door for me. It's made me my every friend. And I don't know who or where I would be if it weren't for the sports that I've been fortunate enough to play. And these emails made it clear to me that, okay, if I could get 2,000 emails as a wrestler, imagine if I had been a football player or a team or a league. 
Um, and so that was my journey of starting Athlete Ally, that we need more allies in sport and then in the world. Um, there's never been a successful social justice movement for a minority group without the support of a majority. So if we're actually serious about making our communities more welcoming and inclusive, uh, we need more allies. We need more people to care. And so I've spent the last, uh, I guess, nine years now um, working with teams, leagues, and athletes on how do we build ally culture? How do we change sport policies for the better? Um, how do we help encourage athlete activism? I, th I think that's also a huge challenge is that en not enough athletes are using their platform to make the world a better place. Um, so yeah, this is something I'm super passionate about and um, I feel very honored and fortunate to be able to do this work on a daily basis. And um, unfortunately, we're still in an era of firsts, right? We're still, we're still breaking new ground on a daily basis of having these conversations. Like, you know, if you look at professional men's sports, you can count the number of out athletes on a, like right now in, in all the professional men's leagues, you have one out athlete who's actively playing. And two, if you count a uh, football player, um, uh, Ryan Russell, who's, you know, he's not on a team right now, right? So, right. you know, that's a choice. That, that, the, the, that's a choice that I think we as people who care about sports can take the responsibility of trying to change by being a little bit more mindful of our words, by trying to be a little bit more intentional about making our teams as welcoming and inclusive as we know they can and should be. So I uh, encourage anybody who listen, check out athleteally.org. You can follow us on athleteally on Twitter, Instagram. Um, the thing that, again, just going back, like my journey to doing this work started with a sticker that took two seconds. And so the thing that I tell everybody is like, you never know what a two second decision will do to change someone's life. Um, and so I know that not everybody's going to be as passionate as I am about this work, but I think everybody can do make a two second difference in how you speak and what you, and you know, how you relate to this issue that hopefully changes things for the better. Hudson, I have a question, uh, just, you know, cause I've, I've gone over topics like this a lot. Like how do you, how do you be an ally? Right. Um, in, in small and, and large actions. So what are some similar, uh, you know, things you can say, do, you know, be about show that that are like your sticker that could just show people that yes I'm you know I am an ally I'm supportive because like I think just that alone can go a long way so not everyone has to actually you know go say something or go do something what are what are some equivalents of stickers that we can take away from this you know what I mean sure yeah so I'd say first um, find the nonverbal ways of showing support that makes sense to you so you know for me it was a sticker on my headgear but for you it could be a pin on your backpack uh, a wristband shoelaces. I mean, there are lots of ways to say, hey, I'm an ally. I support the LGBTQ community. Um, you know, the other sort of piece of that is using your virtual voice. You know, one sharing of an article, posting of a picture on, on Instagram or Twitter, like you don't know who's going to see that. And so that's mm -hmm. sort of a non-confrontational way of showing support. Um, I, I think beyond that, it's actually just, okay, if you're using any language that might be using the identity of a group of people as an insult, eliminate that from your language, right? That, if everybody did that tomorrow, we'd be like 95% of the way there. So the thing I, I encourage everybody to just kind of audit their language and their speech and just try to be more intentional about the words that we use when we talk about one another. I think that that's really important. Um, and then if you're interested in just being a little bit more proactive, I think the piece is just, you know, don't assume that everybody you're talking to is heterosexual, right? Right. The, whether you know it or not, it, whatever sport that, of which you're a part, you've all had been on a team with a gay athlete or a bisexual athlete, you you have or somebody who has an LGBT sibling or parent. So whether you know it or not, we are all connected to this issue, and just being a little bit more proactive in our speech can make a huge difference in, in that person's experience on that team and in that environment. So. Um, like as a coach, you could say, hey, you know, you can always talk to me if you have an issue with a girlfriend or boyfriend. You know, not calling anybody out, not making a speech of it, but just opening that door of saying, hey, whoever you are, I, I support you. I accept you. I'm here for you. Um, I would never want an athlete to not feel comfortable confiding in me for whatever reason. And I think um, as teammates, as coaches, as parents, it's those little little words that open the door for conversation, which will 
really change people's lives and, and make sport better. Um, if, if you would also, if, if there are people who want to take an even more active role, um, what, what, um, what ways can they do so you, with your, uh, with your nonprofit, are there ways that they can be more active in their, uh, advocacy and their activism? Sure. Well, I mean, in these trying times, people can always donate. That's always right. helpful for, for a nonprofit. But I think beyond that, I mean, if you have any, like, so Athlete Ally, we do, uh, we do trainings all over the country um, at colleges and universities. Uh, the past six years, I've worked with every incoming NBA player. So we do the rookie transition program for the NBA every year. If you have a connection to your alma mater, help us open that door or help, you know, reach out to them and say, hey, you know, folks at Pitt, like, what are you doing on LGBTQ respect and inclusion. And I'm, I'm actually happy to tell you this. So we do something called the Athletic Equality Index, where we rank college athletic departments on their LGBTQ policies. Uh, I think Pitt has a 47-point improvement. So, nice. you know, but that helps because an alumni says to the president or to the AD, hey, what are you doing in this area, right? And so if anybody have, if you have connections to a coach, a team, an athlete, um, I would just say knock on that door and either connect them to us or ask them what they're doing in terms of these issues, because a lot of times that little nudge is enough to make really important work happen. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the big one is like, you know, athlete, I we're in the business of like knocking on doors, seeing what opens. And so if you have connections to sport, um, help us, help us knock on those doors, help us see what can happen. Uh, we have over 400 ambassadors. So these are Olympic, Paralympic professional athletes who say, you know, and I care about this, but I want to actively roll up my sleeve. Um, if you're an athlete and you care about being an ally and an advocate, I would love for you to become an ambassador. Um, there are many ways in which we can work with you to help, you know, write op-eds, do public speaking. Um, like, you know, I want to help athletes use their platform more intentionally. And so if you're an athlete listening to this, um, we'd love to get engaged with you as well. Ed, any, any follow-up questions, anything you want to add? Yeah, just, just more of a comment, really. Um, I, I admire so much what you're doing, especially because, I mean, it's not, it's not exclusive to wrestling. I think it's all sports that are, uh, have like a really strong masculine, uh, base, uh, it, it's just like fighting fighting the gender norms because wrestling is like a very rigid culture. Um, and I think it's unique in that and, and how rigid it is because wrestling is very defensive because it's uh, it's always under attack, right? Like we're not getting funding and uh, being cut from the Olympics and people don't take it seriously and all, all these issues. So wrestling as a culture is super defensive and uh, wrestlers are very, very proud of the things that you know, define the culture, which is a lot of like, like you know, hard work, you know, blue collar, uh, you know, toughness, stuff like that. And unfortunately, a lot of that stuff is directly, you know, correlated with uh, you know, traditional, like, masculine gender norms, mm -hmm. uh, when, which, which is so off just because they're, they're really not the same thing. So uh, a lot of the time to counter certain arguments that people be like, oh, we have to do this and this to market the sport. And other people say, well, wrestling isn't for everybody. Um, or like with the singlet argument, it was like, well, if people are uh, off put by the singlet and they don't want to compete in wrestling because of singlets, then we don't want them anyway. It's like, we do though. We do want everyone. Um, wrestling isn't for everyone, but wrestling is for people who are willing to work hard and you know, put their mind to something that could be anybody. Right. So it's like uh, these, these, uh, misconceptions, I guess, about what, what, what makes a wrestler and what wrestling is, you know, at its core, I think is something that, uh, you're addressing with this, especially because it's you. Um, somebody who was, you know, manhandling people at 197 and like now you're out there choking people and it's like you, you're a, you fit, you do fit a lot of traditional like uh, gender norms for, for masculinity, yeah. but also you live in a nice fancy house and you have like a nice golden picture frames and you were a theater <laughs> major or minor and, uh, uh, just, you know, lots of cool stuff like that. So it's like, I think just you in general as a spokesperson, you're a great advocate just because you show you know, what a wrestler can be. Um, and like, I don't feel challenged or threatened by that in any way, uh, which is great. So I think like more advocates like that, because a lot of the times people are like, oh, you advocate for uh, LGBTQIA plus whatever it is now, rights. 
uh like are you gay and he's like no and it's like are you someone that people confuse for being gay it's like no but that doesn't matter uh and i don't know it's just it's really cool i think uh you're starting a lot of conversations i'm glad there's somebody in the wrestling community who's uh really going full force that's not to say there's no support in the wrestling community there have been openly gay wrestlers in the past who uh who are still in good standing with the community uh it's just when things like uh, these conversations happen or uh i saw a social media post from from a very large organization in wrestling uh which was in support of of you know gay athletes and mm. uh, in general and it was just you know a very standard boilerplate like hey we're we're all doing this across departments here's a supportive post and the comment section, man, was unreal. Yeah, like they're trying to, uh, you know, brainwash our kids and like mm. all this crazy stuff. I'm like, you guys totally are missing the point. So like the education gap is is huge. So I feel like even just talking about these things yeah, is enormous. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, speaking for mixed martial arts and jujitsu, I feel like those are two different planes as well. Like MMA might be even worse. <laughs> than wrestling yeah, in worse. some ways uh, uh, jiu-jitsu uh, seems yeah. like somewhere in the middle i'm not sure well <laughs> yeah i was gonna say my experience in jiu-jitsu very very briefly because i know that's so you wanted to respond hudson uh one thing i really like about jiu-jitsu is it actually broadened my because i come from a very orthodox religious jewish background so joining a gym like marcello's which became what what are they got, like six seven hundred people now from all different walks of life and I came in there at 20 years old. <laughs> like I said, a very strict, conservative, orthodox background. Mm. Um, so to, it, it broadened my horizons personally. As a person, I, I learned and grew so much from seeing so many people, different people, so many different walks of life. So I, I, I like to think, that, I know that jiu-jitsu does have that culture as well within it. And I'm curious if you've had to, what your experiences are also in the jiu-jitsu community compared to the wrestling community. Um, but I would like to—I I would like to think it is a little bit better in the jiu-jitsu community. Hmm. So, yeah, Hudson, what are your feelings on that? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think it's—it's it's better in the jiu-jitsu community as well. I, I should caution and say that I think any culture is not um, like universal. Right. Right. Like the culture at Marcelo's is not the same culture at any other gym in the country, and that's mm-hmm. true of any wrestling room. So I think. And that, you know, wrestling fans, MMA fans, you know, any any gym has its own culture based on who's in that room, who's leading that room. And so as much as we can, obviously, we're trying to, like, change the larger culture and sort of structure and environment of these sports. At the end of the day, it really falls on each individual within their own community doing whatever small thing they can to make that community more welcoming. Um, I think jujitsu is interesting in that it's, um, you know, it's it's a mixed training mm-hmm. environment, right? And so you have people, men and women, training together, and I and I actually think that that does something to the culture in a very positive way. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was in Chicago a couple weeks ago. Um, well, I don't know how time time is. I don't understand. <laughs> time, time stopped anymore. at this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was, I was, at some point, I was in Chicago and I got to train with uh, Hanette Stack who's mm-hmm. like a badass jujitsu uh, fighter. And, you know, she submitted me, right? And like, I'm like, wow, like, that's incredible. Um, and, I, and I just think that that experience and opportunity teaches a really valuable lesson about masculinity, about femininity, about the, the traits in a person that we value. Um, and so I think the more any sport can create a diverse environment, whether that's you know, gender diversity, and I want, I hope we have more women's wrestling across the country and in college wrestling rooms. I think that'll make our sport better and stronger. Um, but, you know, diversity is strength, right? We, the, the more diverse a team is, the, the more knowledge we draw on, the more experiences we draw on. Um, you know, if you don't have it, if every college program just came from the town where that school was located, those teams would suck, right? college programs are strong because they are recruiting kids from all over the country and at times all over the world. So diversity Mm -hmm. is strength. And, and I think it's incumbent upon all of us to try to make, to try to strengthen that diversity in whatever way we can. Um, So, you know, it's a, it's an uphill battle. We still have a lot of of work to do in the wrestling community. I think even in the jujitsu and, and in the MMA world. Um, 
But in all of this, it starts with a conversation. I mean, I, I think, unfortunately, not enough spaces in, in combat sports even talks about LGBT issues. So I'm excited that I get a chance to talk with you and um, that your listen, listeners get to hear us kind of have this conversation because it, uh, it's a step and it's an important step. Ed? Yes. Agreed. <laughs> Agreed on all fronts. This has been awesome. <laughs> for so many different reasons i mean i i can't even begin like if i had to tell someone about why this was so great i, I couldn't i don't even know where i would start so thank you so much for your, your time uh for i'm gonna pass it off to each of you for any remarks and shout outs and whatever else you want to plug uh yeah keep, keep on the lookout for more articles more of these i'm really enjoying this platform this is my first time having my own podcast i've been on a bunch before uh, it's, it's and Ben has been super helpful because he knows people and has connections that can get me these opportunities to talk to really I'm coming because that's uh, been great. Uh, but yeah, just uh, I'm really enjoying this experience. We'll, we'll definitely have another episode same time next week. Another guest, I don't know. These things happen kind of short notice. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, just uh, subscribe on uh, uh, you know Twitter. Uh, Patreon for sure. That's where you know all of the the shape of the site and the way we're placed directly affecting the way that we create content and the guests we procure and, and the things that we say and the formats we take. So uh, take take your role in this. We consider you like shareholders, and uh, you're definitely shaping the way the site evolves. We're so young. Uh, but yeah, definitely hit us up on Patreon, and um, yeah, just, just stay tuned for more uh, from me. So so Ben, what do you got? Um. Uh... Follow me on Twitter at AsianPen10. Uh, if you really, well, not right now. I don't order now, but in general, in the future, order from Ben's Beef Jerky. I make and sell it, nice. so feel free to order. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I don't really have that much else to plug. Follow the fight site on Twitter. Follow us on, you know, just make sure that you subscribe to the Patreon if you want. Uh, we a lot of exclusive content. You get to join the Discord. Uh, I'm going to pass off to Hudson because you, I'm sure you have some things that you want to plug, some things you want to shout out, obviously. Yeah, I mean, uh, if anybody wants to just keep keep the conversation going, you can reach out to me at, at Hudsonism on Instagram, Twitter. Um, you can obviously follow Athlete Ally on all different social channels. Um, I love talking about wrestling, jujitsu, athlete, the work of Athlete Ally. So, um, you know, I, I think in all this work that I'm doing today, progress moves at the speed of trust and. We can only really build that trust when we have intentional dialogue. So I encourage you to reach out. Let's keep this conversation going. And um, I appreciate you guys for giving me the platform to just talk about my journey as an athlete and now as an advocate. Anytime. All right. All right. Thank so, you so much for joining let's us. Let's cut Hudson. it. And